doesn't matter how you plan to travel to the Preston market. Just grab your shopping bag and let's go. So in recent times, there's often been restrictions on the reasons you can leave your house and a reduction in how far you can travel. Well, today, you're on your way to your weekly grocery shop, so you can put food on the table. So you're all set there. And if you're a Darabin local, you're probably not too far away, given the Preston Market is the geographical heart of the city of Darabin. So for your listening pleasure, we've got a 15-minute travel podcast for your commute between your home and the Preston Market. It's sort of a potted history of markets spanning time, place and culture to outline the vast world of what a market can represent. So settle in and enjoy the ride. The Market Record Travel Podcast, Chapter 1, Cool and Country. Right now, you're travelling on Cool and Country. The area around what we now call the Preston Market is where Woiwurrung speakers have lived in unison with country, waterways, plants and animals, and in complex relationships with the other Kulin tribes of the Bunwurrung, Tangarang, Jajawurrung, and Wadarang. This land was never ceded. And right here near Preston, the area we travel today, has been in the custodianship of the Wurundjeri Balak clan, who lived on the northern side of the Birurung River, bordered by the Maribyrnong River in the west and the Darabin Creek in the east. A key totem of this clan is Wa the Raven, who along with Bunjil the Eagle, created these lands, rivers, sky and the people of this country, and who still look over them today. It's a pretty good story, but as a white fella, it's not my place to tell it. So while we might say that Kulin have been here for more than 60,000 years, it might just be enough to say that they've been here since the beginning. There's some good landmarks on this country, which we might all be familiar with. There's the Merry Merry Creek, named for its rocky creek bed, and the Darabin Creek, which refers to the swallows that fly over it. The area around here was where Murnong daisy yams were grown and harvested, and where eel, duck and kangaroo were hunted and cared for. I guess now we'd call that an organic free-ranger state. Well, sure, there are no fenced-in farms or domesticated livestock, but there was plenty of skill in looking after country so that it was cared for in balance with people's needs. Not farmed in a European sense, but certainly cultivated and intimately cared for. From all reports, it was pretty good produce, and there were no shortages, just fresh seasonal food to sustain the family and to trade amongst the clans and tribes. This land is part of a pretty incredible trade route, actually, exemplified by the trade in stone axe heads between nations. This trade occurred in all directions, as far as 700 kilometres away to places we now call New South Wales, South Australia and the Northern Territory. Knowing that this continent was home to hundreds of different First Nations tribes, I guess you could call that a pretty significant international trade route. If you'd like to know more about the Willamie Moring Stone Quarry and the Coolan trade routes that we know of, you can visit www.wurundjeri.com.au or take a look at our references and links in the podcast notes so you can follow up in your own time. The Market Record Travel Podcast. Chapter 2. Medieval and Early Modern European Society. 
I'm taking you to another place, the Northern Hemisphere. It's about a thousand years ago and life is hyper-local. At this time, the average person didn't go much further than a few kilometres from their village, mostly to another village or to a small city nearby. No further than 15 kilometres in any direction. Their whole lives were lived in a tiny perimeter. If you think about this radius for yourself, where would it enable you to go? And where could you never go? It might mean never seeing the sea or eating seafood, never visiting your mother's family because of the wide river flowing between you. Everything your life revolved around, your home, workplace, marriage prospects and the church were all super close to home. Of course, goods travelled between villages via tinkers and traders, people who travelled on foot or on wagons. But this was the exception, the outsider bringing something new to the tightly knit, self-sustained community. And people's lives were entirely focused on land. Your land and farming it sustained your family and the community. This meant that local goods were bartered and sold at markets, stalls, and sometimes even sold directly from the homes of artisans, also known as the cottage industries. But then a couple of hundred years later, two really major things happened that would change the face of the world forever. First was the exploration of so-called new lands. New to whom exactly? This was followed by colonisation, exploitation, extractionism and slavery. And then this was followed pretty quickly by the Industrial Revolution, which occurred between 1760 and 1830. So, in the space of a couple of hundred years, the world changed from its hyper-localised nature to a rapidly expanding urban sprawl of megacities fuelled by factories and industrial farming. The use of steam, iron and coal to drive this production and the invention of complex machinery radically changed manufacturing, labour and cities forever. It also made possible the creation of goods on a vast scale and these were shipped across the world. This was also the age of the corporate villain, namely the East India Company, which was the 1770s equivalent of Google, Amazon, Apple and Facebook. This was the period in which humans became separated from the land they lived on, and most communally held land was enclosed by landowners in a series of land grabs. So the cottage industry died, and we stopped working from home, and this was replaced by an external workplace fueled by a generic labour force. Everything and everyone was now implicated in a globalised marketplace. And we could be said to be living through the end of this age still, right now, surrounded as we are by wealth imbalance, the planet's ill health and the current climate crisis. Oh, and I haven't even mentioned the pandemic. The Market Record Travel Podcast, Chapter 3. So, what is a market? 
Okay, so we've covered cool and trade, European industrialization, and we're still making our way towards the Preston market. The term market comes from the Latin mercatus, or marketplace. The earliest recorded use of the term market in Latin is in the Doomsday Book of the year 963. Now, the Doomsday Book is an invaluable primary resource for historical economists, as it was an English survey determining what land and what taxes were owed to the crown. The exact phrase used about markets was Ich wille pet marketo beer in peo selle tun, which translates as I want to be at the market in the good town. Well, too right and good thing that we're going to the Preston market, hey? A fair bit has happened to our ideas of the market since 963. But today, there are still only really five kinds of markets. Hey, Kat, can you help me out here? Sure can, Dan. One, physical consumer markets. Think of places like public food markets, supermarkets and shopping centres. Oh yeah, the housing market, that's in here too. Two, physical business markets. Such as wholesalers, auction houses or trade fairs. Also, this can be where you trade your labour for a wage. So if you have a job, you participate in this market too. Three, non-physical markets. These are intangible things and places, you know, like online retail, a media broadcast market, or even a regulatory marketplace, like, say, a market for carbon pollution credits. Four, financial markets. Now you've got to think stock markets, currency markets, futures markets, insurance markets, and debt markets. Yeah, you can buy debt. Oh, and don't forget Bitcoin. That's still operating in a bit of a grey zone. Five, unauthorised and illegal markets. Now you've got to think about black markets, where drugs, guns, human trafficking, untaxed cigarettes, and even unpasteurised milk can be found. Whatever the type of market, each market operates on the notion of trade and exchange, where each party agrees on the value of a tradable item. So, if we agree, then we get to make a transaction. I get what I want, and you get what you want, and everything is in balance. But this balance is pretty fragile, so problems arise when we can't agree on what something is worth. The Market Record Travel Podcast, Chapter 4, Boom and Bust. So let's talk about when things don't work out. When value can't be agreed upon and things get way out of balance. When greed and gold fever gets in the way. Some notable booms and busts over history include when in 1772, the East India Company stole so many resources that they caused a warehousing crisis that saw perfectly good products thrown overboard. And we've all heard of the 1929 Wall Street crash in America, which saw people join the breadline all over the world due to the fantasy that markets would rise in value forever. And then the 1990s dot-com bubble, when internet companies went bankrupt overnight, which seems impossible in this age of social media saturation and Amazon's global dominance. But, you know, there you go. And you never know when the next black swan event will arrive. Oh, hang on, I think that's an Amazon package. Oh, man, I'm excited. That's that coffee I ordered. And don't forget the global financial crisis of 2007, which was a domino effect caused by housing debt in America. And if you're trying to buy a house in Australia right now, you know that we're already in a big property boom. 
Actually, this property boom phase has pretty much run since 1835 and all started with a company called the Port Phillip Association. On the 6th of June, 1835, John Batman arrived in Nam and met with a group of Wurundjeri leaders near a small stream, which might just have been the Mary. According to Batman, he traded some flour, tomahawks, knives, blankets, mirrors, handkerchiefs and shirts for the purchase of 2,500 square kilometres of land from the Kulin people. Does that sound like a fair deal to you? Of course, in reality, what the Kulin elders were offering as they exchanged handfuls of soil and branches of trees was a symbolic act of allowing Batman to pass through their land. But that safe passage through their country also had conditions. Take care of the country, its plants, animals and people. Which really underlines that their relationship to country was custodial. So rather than owning land, Kulin lived in balance with country. Infamously, this quote-unquote trade deal was struck out just 51 days later, becoming the colonial legal precedent upon which the terra nullius ruling was made. Thus began the fraudulent colonial black market. This ruling means that First Nations people across our continent are fighting for rights to their ancestral lands to this day. This emerging colonial black market started one of the greatest land grabs ever, right here in Victoria, which led to the rapid European invasion of this country, its dissection for sale, and the staggering importation of sheep and cows. This expansion forced people from land and destroyed hitherto well-managed ecologies, and was then supercharged even further with the discovery of gold, further deepening our extractive economies that take from, rather than care for, the land we live on. If you also think this is out of balance, you can visit www.paytherent.net.au to pay some rent. We all owe a lot of rent. The Market Record Travel Podcast Chapter 5 Local and Global Trade Here's where we join the local and global dots in this conversation. We can think of globalisation as the trifecta of colonialism, exploitation and pillage. Basically the idea that growth is good and should have no end. Right up until the pandemic in 2020, globalism was the love child of macroeconomics and cheap travel. Problem is, there's no such thing as cheap anything. Deferred real costs is what the West's economic markets are built on. This is when the real cost of your lifestyle is spread out across the world in real time and real terms, but it's paid for unevenly or not at all, often unjustly. We are living in the time of the Great Reckoning, when all the invoices and accounts are coming home to roost. The patriarchy, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, the dismantling of gender, the climate crisis... All the old ways of doing things are dying. But here's the thing. There's always been international trade and cultural exchange, and there probably always will be. We're curious about new objects, and we crave exotic stimulation. At its best, that's a real sign of human culture and our interconnection across differences. We're all entangled. And to illustrate our entanglement, 
Think about the way international supply chains ground to a halt in 2020. There were two major incidents. The first was the global COVID-19 pandemic, which was first recorded at a wet market in Wuhan, China, and spread rapidly around the globe. The live animal market provided the perfect conditions for the transmission of viruses between species, animal and human. And not only was it a meeting place for local traders from many regions around China, it was also an important travel route for international workers, with strong connections between Wuhan and Milan in Italy. An unfortunate convergence and one we weren't ready for. Another black swan event. The second event was the temporary blockage of the Suez Canal by a super container ship that got wedged in the crucial shipping lane used by 12% of all global shipping companies. The blockage stopped traffic in both directions and delayed ships at sea for an extra 15 days. A fascinating insight into the vulnerability of global trade routes that everyone depends on. Goods delayed included coffee, pharmaceuticals, toilet paper, and spare parts for everything from dialysis machines to washing machines and Tesla cars. This singular event caused chaos for the global trade market for more than 45 days, with huge ramifications for how we live. The impacts felt from the multinational to local levels. In 2018, some of us thought that the 100-year plague danger had passed. Little did we know that in 2020, life as we had known it would come to an abrupt end. And we are still in this holding pattern now. And it's like we're almost living in that medieval village, venturing no further than 5 to 10 kilometres from our homes. But our global consumer habits mean that the items we use every day aren't likely to have been grown or manufactured so close to home. So you might be at the Preston Market by now, or maybe you're nearby. There's no rush. When you're ready, go to any entrance, check in using your COVID Safe app, and listen to the next track.